Well, hey, friends, at Genesis on October 22nd, we did something kind of fun. And that is for my sermon entitled The Moxie of Moses, where we studied um, Exodus 33, where essentially God has just told Moses, because the Israelites had worshiped the golden calf with Aaron while Moses was up on the mountain, that God was going to send them into the promised land. God was going to prepare the way for them to go there, but he wasn't going to go with them. And then this text that we looked at is all about Moses, the moxie of Moses, we called it. And it was all about Moses essentially getting in God's face and saying, show me your ways, um, because you leaving us is never like what you have been. And so God changes God's mind, essentially, and decides, because of the moxie of Moses, to go with Moses. And so what we did was we t- we, I, I gave people three different options of where we could go with the text. Uh, we could look at Moses. Uh, what does it mean to be a courageous mediator for a people? Essentially, Moses stood up for the people, even though... They were really, really in the wrong, even though he probably didn't like them very much at that point. And even though he was angry with them, he stood up for them to God. So option number one was, what does it mean to be a courageous mediator for a people? So that was one option people could go with. And then option number two we uh, was, what does it mean to believe that God's compassion is greater than God's anger? And then option number three, which is what people eventually chose, is what does it mean to get everything you want except the presence of God? And so I gave people the options. They picked number three, and I preached through number three. But now it's Monday morning, and I thought it would be really fun because people have already asked me. I thought it'd be really fun to record the other two. So we're, I'm going to do that. Uh, so I'm going to give you what I prepared for option number one, which is what does it mean to be a courageous mediator for a people? And then I'll do option number two. What does it mean to believe that God's compassion is greater than God's anger? So this is fun. We're always trying new things at Genesis. And so um, enjoy. So we're going to pick up uh, the story. And by the way, if you haven't listened to the original um, sermon, which is put out uh, just Monday, October 23rd, from Sunday's October 22nd's message, take a listen to that first, because for about 10 minutes, I set up the scene, and I'm I'm not going to set up the scene again, other than what I already did. So we're going to dive right into what does it mean to be a courageous mediator for a people? So again, remember, Moses was brought up to the mountain. He went up to Mount Sinai in some mysterious way. Uh, commentators, some commentators say that Moses received the Ten Commandments as a kind of a rumbling thunder, like the voice of God was a rumbling thunder. And Moses translated that rumbling thunder into words. Some commentators believe that Moses really did hear the words. Um, there's lots of different ways to, to, to imagine how that went, that God actually gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. However it happened, Moses did. And then Moses came down the mountain 
holding the tablets. Now, imagine this. Like, this had never happened before in human history. We're in brand new territory. Moses, on some level, uh, has experienced a transcendent moment with God like no one has ever had before. God is entering into a covenant with God's people through these Ten Commandments. This, these, the Ten Commandments weren't just for people um, to, to, you know, make sure they were in line. They were really a way for people to enter into covenant with God and for God to enter into a covenant with people. So that's what the Ten Commandments were really all about. How was it that a group of people that were God's people were going to act on the earth, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago? And when Moses came down the mountain, uh, he saw that Aaron, who was leading the people in Moses' absence, uh, had led them into worshiping a golden calf. So they had already broken uh, number one and number two of the commandments. No other gods before me and don't create a a graven image. And um, so Moses is unbelievably angry. But as we read in the text from Exodus 33, instead of essentially, um, you know, getting angry with God toward the people, Moses says, see, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. This is verse 12 of Exodus 33. You've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Reminds me of when Jesus uh, walked into Jerusalem. And remember, remember the verse when he says, when we read, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And many times we read about Jesus and we read about him as the new Moses. So Jesus was a shepherd, not actually of sheep, but of people. Moses was a shepherd of both. He was actually a shepherd of sheep and then he was a shepherd of people. And I believe at some moment um, over and over again, over the years that Moses has with the children of Israel, you know, they drive him crazy. I mean, it's like, and we read about that over and over again. Uh, in one of my favorite passages in Numbers 11, you know, we read Moses getting so exasperated that he actually says to God, um, you know, did I give birth to these people? If you love me at all, kill me now so that I don't have to lead these people. But on the other hand, because Moses stays with them and Moses continually argues for them with God, when God has sort of had it with them, we read in the text, I I think it's really obvious that Moses feels the same kind of compassion that Jesus did when we read that when, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so I think, number one, um, if you're going to be a mediator for a group of people, there needs to exist in you a genuine love for those people. You're not their savior. 
You're not the person who's going to fix all the problems for them. Moses didn't, you know, he, he wasn't their savior. Uh, yes, he led them out of Egypt, um, but that was really God's doing. Moses was just, you know, somewhat reluctantly following along. And Moses certainly didn't fix all their problems. Uh, Moses, what Moses continually did when he heard the complaints of the people, when he heard the desires of the people, is Moses took those desires to God and he brought those desires, he brought those complaints honestly to God. He didn't go to God with a solution. He didn't go to God with, hey, God, this is what I think we should do. He didn't say, I have a plan, God, would you bless it? He simply over and over again went to God and said, we have a serious problem here and I don't know what to do. These, these people, uh, they say they want meat. Uh, I don't know what to do. These people are hungry. I don't know what to do. These people are thirsty. I don't know what to do. And God over and over again um, listened to Moses and then God provided a way. So I think if you're going to be like Moses and if you're going to be a courageous mediator for a people, number one, you really do have to have a genuine love for them. And then number two, you sincerely need to take the needs of those people to God in prayer. And by prayer, I really don't mean, um, you know, a big Sunday school list of proper prayer. I mean, like, do like Moses did, get in God's face, yell, scream, cry, uh, have no words, but bring those needs, really bring them to God. And yes, that will lead you to action. It always was. God always invited Moses to then do something. Uh, but doing something without praying to God about what these impossible needs are and how they might be met is a fool's errand. We have to have unite if we want to meet the needs of people. Uh, especially around the issues of injustice. It is not a matter of just doing something. It's always a balance between going to God in prayer and then doing what God says. Going to God in prayer and then doing what God says. So the question is, who do you see? What types of people that you see who are harassed and helpless? And how can you stand up for them? We have a group of people at Genesis, uh, who are starting to get into the anti-trafficking movement, especially with a Super Bowl coming up here in Minnesota and uh, coming up here in February. So uh, we're going to hear more about that um, in, the, in the weeks to come, about how a group of people at Genesis are going to be working hard at um, keeping our boys and girls safe. Um, in this time where in the Super Bowl, there's very, very, every single year, it's just disgusting. Whatever city it's in, the trafficking, the sex trafficking goes way up, skyrockets during that week, that weekend. So we have some people who are saying, no, um, we're going to go to God in prayer. We're going to see what we can do about it. And then we're going to do something about it. So who do you see who are harassed and helpless? And then secondly, how will you use your voice and your influence to mediate for those people? How will you use your voice and your influence to mediate for those people? I'm talking about more than social media, though social media is fine. I'm talking about 
learning all you can and then standing up if you are in a position of power and if you can change policies. Uh, there's another organization that I know of, uh, International Justice Mission, that is so good, doing such good work around standing up for those who don't have a voice. And then how, how is it that you really will go to God in prayer for those people? So who do you see? How will you use your voice and your influence to mediate? And then how will you go to God in prayer for those people? I mean, really, what does that look like for you? Um, actually, like what time will you carve out for that? And then lastly, how will you stoop low and walk alongside the people that you love? How will you not just um, do it from afar, but really do it up close? How will you meet the people that you love, that you see that are harassed and helpless? How will you walk alongside them? And so you're not just standing up for them apart from them, but really from within them. So those are the thoughts on what does it mean to be a courageous mediator from a people taking Moses' cue. So now let's head into the second option, which again, we didn't have time to get to. Uh, and that is, what does it mean to believe that God's compassion is greater than God's anger? What does it mean that God's compassion is really greater than God's anger? So here's, here really is the truth. If you are determined to find an angry God in the scriptures and paint God out to be full of wrath and needing to satisfy that wrath, you will find that God in a bunch of separate verses. I mean, you really will. And so, and, and if you have been taught about that, yep, th those verses are really in there. And so you can't pretend that they're not. You can't pretend that they all mean something different. You have to take those some of those verses and say, what is happening uh, in the greater context, and what is the progressive revelation of who God is in the scriptures? What I mean by that is, you know, the scriptures are written over the course of several thousand years, and people people's view of God uh, changed over time. And that doesn't mean God changed. I don't think that God changed at all. Uh, and uh, even though we read in the scriptures, even in this one in Exodus 33, that it seems like God seems to change God's mind. And so, you know, either you believe that God, in some senses, uh, really did change God's mind, or um, that the storyteller, the person that wrote down this story, when it came time for the story to be written, which may have been a few hundred years after the actual events took place. This was their device to under to convey uh, just what it was that they believed God was doing. And so that's another option that when we read the Bible like this, and when we read Moses' conversations with God, um, in a very real way, I really believe that they really did happen. In another very real way, I believe that as they were written down, they were written down by whoever wrote them. Many people believe Moses wrote the first five books. Some people don't. Um, for example, how could Moses have written at the end of Deuteronomy that Moses died? 
you know, I mean, that's just one, that's just one example of some people that say maybe Moses didn't write them. Doesn't matter to me necessarily, uh, you know, for these purposes. But one way to understand that is, is to say the writers of Exodus, the writer of Exodus, this is how he understood, um, this, this is the way he understood to explain the dynamic of God being angry and God changing God's mind. Did it happen exactly that way and exactly those words? Maybe. It's very possible that it did. But it's not the only solution. When we read that, you know, for example, God says um, in Exodus 33, verse 3, to Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you or I would consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. So then you got to answer like, okay, God seems angry right there. Um, would God really consume God's people? <laughs> like, is that really something that God would have actually done? Maybe. And you have to say that. Maybe. The truth is he doesn't. These are God's people and God can get angry at God's people. But at the end of the day, God's compassion really does win out. And the reason why I can say that with, with conviction is that the overall arc of God's actions we read about over the course of the whole narrative in the scriptures bends overwhelmingly toward love, compassion, and mercy. We start off with the children of Israel and all of their sin and all of their folly and all their wandering and all their idolatry. And then they did, they demand kings and God doesn't want to bring them kings, but they demand it. So God says, fine. So they have Saul, then they have David, and then they have a whole list of bad kings. And then the prophets come and the prophet's job is to bring God's word to God's people many times saying you have wandered away from God and you have to turn back. And so people uh, sometimes turn back and then they fall away again. And so all throughout the course of the Hebrew scriptures, from the narratives, the Torah to the kings, eventually to the prophets, is really one long story of God continually standing by God's people in the inevitability of their turning away from God. When we turn the page to the New Testament, we see the incarnation of God. We see God becoming one of us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is utterly breathtaking. It's so familiar to us that we don't stop to really <laughs> realize that in the beautiful Hebrew scriptures, we see pictures of God. We hear images of God. You, you can't see God's face. God is in some ways ineffable. We don't whisper the word of Yahweh. Uh, people didn't do that. Um, but then as we turn the pages to the New Testament, God is not only visible, God becomes human. God walks around with us. God teaches us. God shows us who God is fully and finally. And we see God in the person of Jesus, loving the, outs the outcast, providing grace and mercy, eventually uh, being hung on a cross to display God's love for us. And there are some people that 
really insist that the only way to see Jesus hanging on the cross is to say, well, see, this is this is God's wrath. Uh, God had to pour out God's wrath on somebody. And if it, if it wasn't going to be us, it had to be Jesus. So God is so angry um, and the and he cannot stand any sinners or any sin that um, God pours out God's complete destruction and wrath on Jesus. Jesus takes it all in and we are forgiven somehow. And that really is one way to understand the atonement. Uh, I don't think it's the best way, but it is. I mean, certainly you can find verses to back that up in the Bible. I think a much truer representation uh, across the whole pages of the scriptures about what is happening is that this God that has become incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, um, this God loves us so much that this God decides in some mysterious way to pile all the sin that we did onto God's self. And in some mysterious way, that ransoms us from captivity to sin and death and invites us into an, into an eternal life with God, which starts at that moment of the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's really God's love. Jesus is showing God's love on the cross, not God's wrath. And so that's why I can with, I think, some conviction say that the overall arc of God's actions that we read about over the course of the whole narrative in the scriptures bends overwhelmingly toward love, compassion, and mercy. And that's what we see in the person of Jesus Christ. We read about it in Hebrews. We read about it in John 1. We read about it in Colossians 1. Over and over and over again, we read these words that Jesus is the perfect image of God. That in the beginning, there was the word, the logos, that is Jesus. In the beginning, there's Jesus. And the word and, and the logos, the Jesus was with God and the Jesus, or a, a, a better way to say that is the Christ. The Christ was with God and the Christ was God in the very beginning. And then in, in again, in Colossians 1, we read that um, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Uh, in Hebrews, we read that he represents the fullness of God, Jesus does. And so, and then when we read in the scriptures in the New Testament that we're in these last days, what that essentially means is not, you know, because we, we like 2,000 years ago, we read we're in the last days. So like typically how we've understood that is we're, you know, Jesus is about to come back a second time. And I, and I do think in some senses, believers have lived for 2000 years believing that, and that's a good thing. We're, we're leaving, we're living expectantly that the Christ will return once again to finally and fully make all things new. But I think what the writers were really talking about is, you know, there was a, there was a time in Torah when we understood God one way, and then we we continue to God, understand God more and more through the kings and the prophets. But in these last days, uh, we understand God in terms of Jesus. And he's going to be the final, Jesus is the final uh, representation of who God is. That's the most orthodox Christian understanding of what, what the writers mean when they say we're in these last days. Meaning there's not going to be a greater revelation of God other than Jesus, especially Jesus on the cross. But the, the teachings of Jesus, the, the way that Jesus treated people, 
Um, this is the picture of God that we can fully and totally trust. So God's compassion is greater than God's anger. And I think that's where, like, again, you can't get away from the some of the crazy, even horrific examples of what seems like God's anger in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, one book I want to recommend is uh, a little book by Greg Boyd called Cross Vision, which really uh, gives a, a, a pretty uh, solid explanation of how you can read um, the violence of God in especially the Hebrew scriptures and reconcile it with a loving God represented in Jesus. Not enough time to go into all that, but I would say read Cross Vision by Greg Boyd. Another little book that I think is really, really, really excellent is a book by Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D. And the book is called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And he takes on hell. He takes on the violence of God. He takes on doubt. He takes on, I mean, it's a beautiful book. So if you're really interested in reading more about how to reconcile the picture of an angry, violent God with the picture of Jesus, I encourage you to read either one of those books. All right, friends, this was fun. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, Sunday was one of my favorite Sundays at Genesis um, in three and a half years. There was something in the room that day that was just so potent and beautiful and surprising. So um, I love being a part of this community gang. I love being one of your pastors. I love getting a chance to study the scriptures and share them with you and hear your reactions to them. I love the way our community does the scriptures. We do them in a circle. We do them listening to each other's voices, young and old, not just the pastor's voice, but the voice of the congregation too. That's always been the vision of Genesis ever since we first began, before we first began, we dreamed of a community that listened to one another, that was attentive to one another, that that's one of our, our, one of our seven values, attentiveness, that we're in conversation with one another about God. That's another one of our seven values. So uh, love you guys. And uh, thanks so much for your partnership uh, in the life of God among us. Grace and peace, friends.